Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Please give your attention as God's holy word is read. In the, year, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and so it happened, while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his head. Hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of, all, of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host, to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. 
The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having, a, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. It's kind of how I felt as after reading that and having to come up with a sermon for the Sunday. I was faint and sick for days after. <laughs> I'm kidding, I was not. But it is an interesting passage, right? How are we to, what are we to make of this? Because as we move into chapter 8 here, we are sort of entering a new section in the book of Daniel. Because chapter 7, the way I like to break the book down, uh, most you know, study Bibles, commentators break the book down, chapters 1 through 6, chapters 7 through 12, you've got the historical narratives, and then you've got the visions and all the weird stuff in the second half. But I like to break it down based on how, in what languages the book was written. Because chapters 2 through 7 were all written in Aramaic. And now chapters 8 through 12 are back in the Hebrew language. So I like to mark this as a transition here. As chapter 7 marks the end of the Aramaic portion, that portion which was Daniel's message to the world because it's written in the language of the world. Aramaic was the language of the world. So that uh, section marks off the end of that section. And that section, Daniel's message to the world, basically contained three messages. We see that God is in sovereign control of all nations and kings. They rise and they fall at His command. That's what we saw in chapters 2 and chapter 7 with the visions that were given of the successive kingdoms that will come in, in world history. The second message that we saw in, those, in that section was that God delivers and vindicates His people from the hands of wicked rulers. We saw that in chapter 3 with Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. And we saw it in chapter 6 with Daniel in the lion's den. And then the third and final message is that God will judge kings and nations of the world. God will judge the kings and nations of the world. We saw that in chapter 4 when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And we saw it in chapter 5 when God uh, showed the writing on the wall to King Belshazzar and, and conquered his kingdom with the Medes and the Persians. So that was the end of that section, chapters 2 through 7. Now we transition back to Hebrew, and as Daniel in chapters 8 through 12 now starts to speak directly to God's people. So these messages that we see starting in chapter 8 to the end of the book 
are messages directed specifically to God's people who are living in a hostile world, who are living in the world of these beasts, these nations that rise and fall, that God is causing to rise and fall. The God's message to His people, how to live in this hostile world. Now Daniel 8 details yet another vision that Daniel has during the reign of King Belshazzar. And in this vision, Daniel sees a two-horned ram and a shaggy male goat with a pronounced horn. And like the vision of chapter 7, this vision troubles Daniel and he seeks divine help in interpreting it. But unlike the vision of chapter 7, the angelic messenger, Gabriel in this case, is more specific regarding the identity of the ram, the identity of the goat, and what's going to happen here. But he says that this vision refers to many days from now. It is a very troubling message for Daniel and for the people of God that is coming in the years and decades that lie ahead. Dark days are ahead here for God's people. And the message here of Daniel 8 is simply this. God's people are called to persevere, for it is always darkest before the dawn. God's people are called to persevere, for it is always darkest before the dawn. Well, the passage here begins in verses 1 through 8 as Daniel receives this vision of the ram and the goat. And like chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8 opens by giving us a little bit of historical context in verses 1 and 2, in which we see, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw the vision that I was by the river Ulai. So he says this is the third year of King Belshazzar, and that places these events, this vision that Daniel receives, somewhere around the year 550 B.C. So this also places the events in chapter 8 somewhere historically between Daniel's chapter 4 and chapter 5. But 550 B.C. is also the approximate date in which Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquers the Medes and unites the two kingdoms under his own reign. So in this vision here, which the ram represents Persia, we see the Persian Empire starting to begin here in the year 550. So here we are in the third year of King Belshazzar, and Daniel has this other vision. In the first part of this vision, he sees a ram standing on the bank of the Ulai Canal in verses 3 and 4. It says, then I lifted my eyes and I saw, and there, standing by the, beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. So here's this ram, pictured with two horns, one bigger than the other, and he comes charging out of the east. Right? That's what, you know, when you're charging westward, you must be coming from the east, right? So he's charging out of the east. This is 
from the perspective of Babylon. So Persia being east of Babylon. And he moves to the west, he moves to the north, he moves to the south, and none could withstand the onslaught of this ram. So this ram here, we see, he did as he pleased and he became great. Now the vision doesn't end there. Daniel has another part of the vision where he sees now a male goat coming from the west in verse 5. So as I was considering the ram and what he was doing, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So as this ram is advancing westward, northward, and southward, uh, this goat comes out of the west, and he comes across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, which signifies how fast, how, how uh, his amazing speed, he is moving so fast, he is not even touching the ground. And this goat had a notable or a prominent or a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So now you've got these two animals here, these two aggressively minded animals, a ram and a goat. And what you get them together, they kind of engage in battle. That's exactly what you see. The male now, the male goat charges at the ram in furious anger. And as the two animals come together in battle, the goat deals a death blow to the ram, shatters his two horns, and then starts to trample all over the carcass of the ram. And just as there was none who could stand before the ram, so too there is none who can rescue the ram from the power of the goat. And just as things are going great for the goat when he's at the height of his power, this great horn then is broken. And in its place, four other conspicuous Horns rise toward the four winds of heaven. Now, we're not done yet. The vision isn't done yet. But you, you think about this. It's like, what, the, what in the world is going on here? Right? What is this all about? There's rams and goats and horns and things. Well, spoiler alert, in case you were wondering, we're going to find out the identity of the ram and the goat. And we're going to find out that they, are, they represent two kings or two kingdoms. But they're not just any two kings or any two kingdoms, but two very specific kings. Two very specific kingdoms, as we learn in verses 20 and 21. The ram is Persia, and the goat is Greece. Now, the details of these visions here, the detail that this vision kind of lays out, the the history of Persia and Greece here, has led skeptics of the Bible to conclude that Daniel is not telling prophecy, so much as he is telling history. That's why skeptics like to date Daniel with a late date. They say that Daniel had to have been written in the 2nd century B.C. because he describes in such great detail what is going on in the scenes of world history. But we know better, right? We know better because our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign over the affairs of kings and nations. He commands their risings and He commands their fallings. That's what we've learned already in various parts already through the book of Daniel. And as one commentator writes, these empires that to human eyes looked so powerful that seemed to have no weaknesses, no chinks in their armor, were actually mere sheep and goats whose destiny lay in the hands of the divine shepherd, the Lord himself. And here, God is giving Daniel a glimpse 
of what is in store for God's people leading up to what is commonly called the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is that period where if you turn in your Bible from Malachi chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 1, when you turn that page, you've advanced 400 years in world history. And Daniel is giving, God is giving Daniel a vision of what's going to happen in that period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. And what we learn are that dark days are coming for God's people as they will get caught up in the affairs of Gentile kings and nations. And this vision here is meant to help them persevere, to help them to remain faithful, to help them to remain steadfast because God is in control. He is giving them detailed visions of what's going on so they can rest knowing that everything is in God's hands. Everything is under God's control. Even though it looks like the world is falling apart around us, God is in control. Because if you belong to Christ, the whole world revolves in the hand of the One who cares for you far more deeply than you can imagine. So as a result, nothing in the present or in the future can ever separate you from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord as Paul writes in Romans 8. So that's the vision of the ram and the goat. Now the vision continues in verses 9-14 through as Daniel gets now this vision of a little horn. A little horn that rises up out of the four horns that come up when the goat's great horn is destroyed. Look at verse 9. So out of one of them, that is the four horns that grew up in the place of the great horn, a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now we saw a little horn before, last chapter, last week in chapter 7, we saw a little horn that rises up in the great beast, the fourth beast that rises up from the sea, this fourth beast that had ten horns, and then we saw a little horn rise up and it destroys three of the horns. And the temptation here is to equate the little horn in chapter 8 with the little horn in chapter 7. But I'm going to argue that we need to resist that temptation. So this little horn here grows strong, he grows aggressive, and he begins to advance to the east, to the south, and toward the glorious land, that is toward the holy land, Palestine, Israel. And this little horn now begins to turn his attention to God's people in verses 10 through 12. And the little horn grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So this little horn begins to exalt himself. He exalts himself even to the host of heaven itself. The little horn now begins to persecute God's people. The little horn begins to see himself as God manifest and he puts an end to temple worship and sacrifice. 
And it appears that this little horn will prosper in its persecution of God's people and the overthrow of God's worship. So as all of this is happening, it then provokes a couple of angels to begin questioning. As one angel speaks to another, he says, how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering? In verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who is speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That question, how long? That is the question that is always on the lips of God's people when they're facing persecution, right? This question would be on everyone's mind. How long will God's people face persecution? How long will there be under the subjugation of this little horn? This is the question that all Christians who are facing trials ask. How long will this go on? How long will this trouble continue to to subjugate me? It seems like in the days ahead, God's people will be severely persecuted and have their worship desecrated and the temple trampled underfoot, it is natural to ask, how long? And the angel says to Daniel that the duration is for 2,300, literally, mornings and evenings. Now, as with most numbers that we see in apocalyptic visions, like here in Daniel or in the book of Revelation, I think we need to resist the temptation to interpret the number literally. uh, Because first of all, there's debate whether or not it's 2,300 days or 2,300 mornings and evenings, meaning 1,150 days. So there's debate over that. But if you figure 360 days in a year, 2,300 days would work out to somewhere between six to seven years. And there's no real numerical significance to this number. I think it's best to see it as what one commentator writes here. He says, whatever the specific time frame meant, The good news was that at a point subsequent to the desecration caused by the little horn, God's temple would be restored. This promise would provide hope to those living amid the raging of the little horn. In other words, from God's perspective, the days of the reign of the little horn are numbered. Evil does not get to reign forever. God has set a limit on it. He has set a limit on it. 2,300 evenings and mornings. That is how long they get to reign. That is how long they get to trample underfoot the temple. And then the temple will be restored. In the grand scheme of things, six to seven years is not a long period of time when we consider the entire scope of redemptive history. Now that's the vision. Daniel receives a vision that in coming years, Two great kingdoms will reign and rule over the people of God, Persia and Greece. Out of the Greek empire will arise a king, a little horn, who will blaspheme against God, cancel worship and sacrifice, persecute God's people, exalt himself above God, and make the temple desolate. This will go on for a specified period of time, 2300 mornings and evenings, 
then the sanctuary will be restored. These are, dark, these are dark days ahead for God's people. If anyone thinks being part of God's people means a life of blessing and ease where no troubles happen and everything goes according to plan, you need to think again. This little horn has it out for God's people. And he goes out of his way to make life miserable for the people of God. To be sure, there are times when God's people find favor in the eyes of pagan kings, right? Joseph found favor in the eyes of the Pharaoh of Egypt during the days of Genesis. Daniel himself found favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar and in the eyes of King Darius here in the book of Daniel. But then there are also times when, according to the providence of God, pagan rulers act out against the people of God. Because after the Pharaoh in the days of Joseph... There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and who hated the people of God and who put them into subjugation. The Pharaoh during the Egypt, or the Pharaoh during the Exodus, I should say. Think of Haman in the book of Esther, how he had it out for the people of God. Or think of the Pharisees during the days of Jesus and the early church, how they had it out for our Messiah and for the church. In each of those cases, it was always darkest before the dawn. And in each of those cases, God worked a mighty work of salvation for His glory and for the good of His people. So when times seem dark and God seems far away, when it seems as if God has turned His face from you, when it seems dark, remember that we have to persevere, that we have to remain faithful, that we have to remain steadfast, for God will deliver His people from dark days. So now after the vision is complete, we see the interpretation in verses 15 through 27 as Daniel seeks to understand it and the, Ab- the angel Gabriel is dispatched to make it known in verse 17. So he, that is Gabriel, came near where I stood and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now Daniel, like almost everyone else in the Bible, when he sees an angel, he falls on his face. He sees this magnificent being, this this angelic being, and he is fearful, he is frightened, as everyone in the Bible is when they see an angel. But Gabriel comforts him and says, the vision that you've received is for the time of the end. Now the reference here to the time of the end does not necessarily mean the end of time. It most likely refers to the end of the period of time that is referenced in this vision here, uh, the end of the Persian and Greek period. But oftentimes what we see in biblical prophecy is that visions like this, we see a double fulfillment. We see a near fulfillment, one that occurs sort of relatively soon from the perspective of the people in the Bible. Then we also see a far or ultimate fulfillment that sort of consummates this, that is more a, a sort of a, a greater fulfillment of what we see here. And we'll discuss this more in a little bit. But Gabriel now goes on to explain the vision in verses 19 through 25. And in verses 20 through 21, we learn the identity of the ram and the goat. The ram is the kings of Media and Persia. The goat is the kingdom of Greece. 
The great horn is the first king. This would be Alexander the Great. And Gabriel also reveals that the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great will be broken and four lesser kingdoms will rise in its place. And that's exactly what we see happen in world history. The Greeks under Alexander the Great moved... His, his, his conquest of the known world was very rapid. It was very speedy. And he crushed the Medo-Persian Empire in the year 331 B.C. And then eight years later, Alexander dies in 323 B.C. at the age of 33. And his kingdom is divided into four smaller kingdoms. In fact, Alexander's sons are murdered and four of his generals take his place and they split the kingdom in four parts. If you're curious about the names of the generals, they are Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And they split the kingdom. And then these four kingdoms end up spending the next couple of centuries vying for power over the region. And then near the end of this period, we see a king of bold face arise. This is the little horn who exalts himself and persecutes the people of God. Now by all accounts, it is almost unanimous that this little horn is believed to be Antiochus IV, uh, who, called, who went by the name or title Epiphanes. Antiochus IV ruled between the years of 175 and 164 B.C. He was a king out of the Seleucid Empire. That's one of the four which ruled over the region of Syria, just north of Israel. And he enlarged his kingdom through military conquest as he forged eastward, as he forged southward. And he sought to bring everyone under his rule to follow Greek religion and Greek culture, which is why when he got into the promised land, he banned circumcision, he banned sacrifice in the temple, he even defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar to the god Zeus. He burned copies of the Scriptures and slaughtered all those who would not comply. All in all, not a very nice guy. And here, finally, Gabriel says that he, this little horn, will rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken. And his title, Epiphanes, means God manifests. So like every other tyrant in world history, he thought himself divine. But he ends up dying in shame as history records that Antiochus IV died alone and he died insane. So Gabriel explains the vision. And in verse 26, he says, seal up the vision. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which is told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. This vision given to Daniel is for a future time. So he says, seal it up until that time. It is not for your time now, Daniel. It is for a time in the future. You need to seal it up. Which is interesting because in the book of Revelation, when the visions are being given, John is told not to seal it up, to reveal it because the time is now. But here, the time is for the future. And the events in these visions that Daniel receives here will begin at least 11 years in the future and will cover the next 400 years culminating in the year 164 B.C. And then we see, of course, Daniel's reaction in verse 27. He says, I fainted and I was sick for days afterwards. 
I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So that is the vision. What are we to make of this vision? Clearly, this vision was future for Daniel from his perspective, right? So God here is preparing Daniel and he's preparing the people of God for what lies ahead. But for us, this is history, right? So why should we care? This is something that's going to happen in the period just to the future of Daniel. So why should we care? I'm going to give you three reasons why we should care. First, note how accurate Daniel's vision here was regarding future events. This vision here gives near explicit detail concerning the rise and fall of the Persian and Greek empires. The vision also gives detailed description of the reign and rule of Antiochus IV, his reign of terror over the people of God. Only the sovereign God who is in control of kings and nations can provide such detailed visions. Again, remember, skeptics explain this away by, Daniel, by claiming Daniel must have been written after the fact because it is so detailed. The, the, the detail that we see here in chapter 8 and what we'll see later in chapters 10 and 11 is so detailed. Daniel must have been written after the fact. But we, again, we know better. Sovereign God who is in control of all things, He is giving them details about what's coming ahead. And that applies to us as well. When we read the book of Revelation, we see these visions of what lies ahead. When Jesus gives his Olivet Discourse, he gives uh, uh, predictions of what's lying ahead for the people of God. Secondly, we mentioned earlier that when pagan rulers act out against the people of God, that's when God performs mighty acts of deliverance on their behalf. And the events depicted here with Antiochus IV occur during a period of Jewish history that is often called the Maccabean period, which culminated in the Maccabean Revolt of 164 B.C. And during the Maccabean Revolt, the Jews won their independence from the Seleucid Empire, and they rededicated the temple. They cleansed the temple, and they rededicated the temple, and it was open for business again. And this is commemorated by the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, the cleansing of the temple. And this period of relative independence lasted for nearly a hundred years until the Romans took over. But again, here the lesson is that when it appears darkest, God is there to deliver His people. When this, this little horn rises up to oppress God's people, God delivers His people. The third reason why we should care is that this little horn, Antiochus IV, is a type of Antichrist, a foretaste of what is to come. And this is this idea of the prophecy having a near and a far fulfillment. Because Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, when Jesus starts to warn us about the end as it is coming, in Matthew 24, in verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And then the Gospel writer says, whoever reads, let him understand. So when Jesus is talking about the end and what's going to happen and this, how God's people are going to go under and face this great tribulation, 
he points back to the time of Daniel and says, just as it was in the days of Antiochus IV, remember the abomination of desolation. That's what it's going to be like now when God's people approach the end. But we know as Daniel or as, man, as Jesus goes forward in that, in that discourse, he says, after the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven and he will bring vindication and victory and judgment to the enemies of God. But just as in the days of Antiochus when the temple was desecrated, when he desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar, even though Antiochus desecrated the temple, at least at that time, no one laid hands on God Himself. But we see nearly 200 years later, in the person of Jesus Christ, who Himself was the temple of God, right? He refers to Himself as the temple, as a, as a fulfillment of the temple. In John 2, He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And it was told that He is talking about the temple of His body. That temple was desecrated on the cross because of the sins of man and the rebellion of man and Satan's enmity. That temple was destroyed. That temple was desecrated on the cross. This was the darkest day in redemptive history, yet it also marked the greatest victory over sin and death in redemptive history. The temple of God, which was desecrated at the cross, was rebuilt three days later. And now God, through Jesus Christ, is building a temple with living stones as former enemies of God are turned into His children by faith in Jesus Christ. So the call for us today is to stand firm. It is to persevere. It is to remain faithful during these turbulent times. Because the church of Jesus Christ has ever and always will be under attack by the beasts of this world. We may not be facing it here and now, but the church as a whole has never known true peace in this world. That is why we must persevere through difficult times. As one commentator writes, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. We do not even have assurances for how this day will end. But Daniel 8 keeps before our minds the unchanging truth that God knows the future and that the story He is telling will end in victory and vindication for His kingdom and His people. There may be suffering. There may be persecution. There may be death. But God who holds all earthly kingdoms and rulers in His hand is in control and can be trusted. As Jesus says in John 16.3, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We will always have trouble in the world, but for those who are in Christ, we have overcome the world because Christ has overcome the world. And we are in Christ. Let's pray.